Heavenly Father, thank you again for the opportunity for us to gather, to be encouraged in our understanding of who you are and in our relationship and walk with you. Thank you that we can gather here with others. And we pray that tonight you would again do what you normally do, that you would open our minds and our hearts to your word, that you would be pleased to speak to us, to show us your truth, to enlighten us, to nudge us and move us forward, that we might be closer to the Lord Jesus and we might serve him with our whole hearts, that we might be passionate followers of Jesus. We ask and pray this in his name. Amen. The book of Colossians, the Apostle Paul is writing to a group of reasonably new Christians, a couple of years old, who have been solid in their faith and who have come under the influence or there are some people in the community and potentially in the church, it's a bit vague, who have a very different way of thinking about things and basically their bottom line is Jesus plus. Jesus by himself, his death on the cross is not enough to reconcile us to God and make us um, connected with God. We need to do some other things as well and if we don't do these other things then we won't be connected with God we won't be fully reconciled to him and so Paul is writing to strongly counter that very false assertion and his premise out of tonight's paragraph the basic premise is that for those of you the Colossian Christians who have become followers of Jesus you've accepted him you need to continue you need to stay committed to him and not committed to him plus something else it's just committed to him what are we going to say when we stand before God nothing except Jesus why should God let me into heaven why should God let you into heaven why should God let anybody into heaven only because of Jesus that's not how good we've been how religious we've been how moral we've been that's not going to make any difference in the whole wide world so I've got three things I want to say tonight. <clears throat> and the first thing is, and if you were here this morning, then uh, you've heard these three things. Pastor David was to be on tonight, but unfortunately he's still not well. He's still sick. Uh, so please remember and pray for him that he might recover. The first thing is, this passage doesn't actually say it, but it's built on the premise. It's built on the assumption that this has happened. And so in terms of application for us, we've got to get this first thing in, this foundation statement. The first thing that you have to do is to begin by connecting to Jesus in the first place. You need to be a believer, a follower of Jesus. That's the most important question in the whole world. It's the question that all the religions of the world seek to address and they come up with different answers. Probably the oldest book we have, part of the Old Testament, is the book of Job. What does Job say in chapter 9, verse 2? He says to his friends, I know that all of this is true, but how can a person be right before God? That's the question. How can a person be right before God? One of his own friends, Bildad, a little bit later on in the book, chapter 25, he'll say that, Anybody who's been born into this world is not pure in God's sight. And he's correct. We're all sinners. We're all tainted with sin. None of us are an exception to that. Psalm 143 verse 2 says, No one living is righteous before God. No one. <clears throat> well then, how can we get right with God? There are two groups and there are two answers. 
In the first group is the vast majority of people in this world. And certainly we're the group of all of those who are very religious, whether they're Muslim or Mormon or Jehovah's Witness or Hindu or it doesn't matter. <clears throat> it's probably where, my guess, the vast majority of Australians would place themselves. They wouldn't call themselves religious, but they would put themselves in this answer. How can I make myself, how can I get reconciled to God? How can I be assured that when I die, I'll go to heaven, I'll be accepted to him? What have I got to do? They would say, that's it. You have to do things. Whether it's the religious answer, or it's the moral answer, or it's the social answer. Rhonda's father, I asked him many, many years ago, he's passed away now, but I asked him way back when I met him very early on, uh, if you were to die, why would God let you into heaven? Answer, because I've been a good person, and he was a good bloke, and I seek to live my life by the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Pretty typical Australian answer, I guess, I think. Certainly as are the many of people I chat with. This group over here, the religious people, the moral people, those who are endeavouring to do more good things than bad things, trying to be good people, they think God's going to weigh it up on the end and then they'll be allowed in. All of this group can be subsumed under one word and it's a word, do. They have to do something. It's about human effort. This group over here is the second answer. And this group would be the people who say, we can't. We are so flawed, so broken, we do not have the ability to be able to do enough good things to outweigh our bad. We can't keep all of our religious standards perfectly. We can't. That one's all about human effort. This one is all about divine accomplishment. If we're going to be reconciled to God, God's got to do it. God's got to do something. And that, of course, is the good news, that God has done something. If this group of people are summarised by the word do, then this group are summarised by the word done. The difference between Christians, Christianity, and all other religions in the world are the two letters N-E. Do, done. It's all based upon what Jesus Christ has done for us. In fact, back in Colossians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul argues exactly that point. He says to them that through Jesus, as we were reminded tonight at communion, through his death on the cross, God has been able to reconcile all people to him through the blood Jesus shed on the cross. Paul says this includes you who were once far away. You were his enemies, separated from God by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Jesus in his body. As a result, we come into his presence. We're reconciled. We're made right with him. Do, done. And the Colossian Christians got that. They understood who Jesus was. They accepted him as their Lord and Saviour. And now there was the influence of people coming to them and saying, listen, you've also got to do this. Having Jesus, not enough. You also have to do certain things. And the Apostle Paul alludes to that, some of those things in verse 16. Don't let anyone judge you, condemn you, look down on you for what you eat or drink. If you want to be acceptable to God, if you want to be fully pleasing to him, then you have to watch what you eat. 
and they're probably, of course, referring to the Old Testament Jewish food laws. Or what you drink. And then Apostle Paul goes on and talks about, and you also have to keep these annual festivals and these monthly moon ceremonies, as well as these weekly Sabbaths. If you do those things, then you'll be acceptable to God. Then you'll be forgiven. Then you'll be um, reconciled to him. And the Apostle Paul is saying, no, no, no. It's Jesus full stop, not Jesus plus. It's all about what he has done, not what we have to do. The Apostle Paul in verse 17 says, for these rules that these people are coming up with are only shadows of the reality that was to come, and the reality is Jesus. This is Paul's metaphor, it's his analogy. It's a little bit like this. In Sydney, well, in Brisbane, there's a story bridge. In Sydney, it's the Sydney Harbour Bridge. I'll go with the Sydney Harbour Bridge one. <clears throat> the Sydney Harbour Bridge spans this huge gulf and connects it. And on a sunny day, like today was a, a nice sunny day, the sun will shine and the shadow of the Harbour Bridge will be cast into the waters of the Sydney Harbour below it. And the Apostle Paul is saying, that Sydney Harbour Bridge is like what Jesus has done. <clears throat> He's spanned the gap between God and us. He's built a bridge. All of these people over here trying to obey their religious rules and regulations, they're trying to build a bridge. They are in the process of constructing it, but they can't span the gap and no one ever has. And it's an impossible task. But Jesus has actually done it. He's spanned the gap. Now, if you were to go to Sydney and you were to see the Sydney Harbour Bridge, and if you wanted to walk from one side to the other or drive or go on the train or however you wanted to do it, <clears throat> you have a choice. You can do it like, depending on the fact that Jesus has done it, you can go on the bridge that he has established, relationship with him, or, if you're in this group, then you can go on the shadow of the Sydney Harbour Bridge which goes across the water. If you wanted to get from this side to that side, do you want to go on the solid bridge or do you want to go across on the shadow? It's obvious, isn't it? Well, that's the illusion, I think, that Paul is sort of alluding to. That in Jesus, it's real. But in all these other things, they are very slight pictures. They're shadows. Then verse 18, Paul says, and don't let anyone condemn you. Don't let them disqualify you from the prize. What these guys were saying, the people with the extra rules and regulations, what they were saying was to Christians, if you don't do these extra things, if you don't follow our food laws or our drinking laws, or if you don't follow our Sabbaths and new moons and annual feasts, Verse 18, if you're not connecting and worshipping angels, if you're not having visions about that. You see, they believe that for them to get connected to God, it was something like you needed to know the passwords and you need to have these secret codes so that when you died and travelled through whatever you travelled through, or in your spiritual experiences being caught up into the heavenlies of being reconciled to God, you had to have some other knowledge. You needed to know the names of the angels. You needed to have the right cues, the right phrases to pass to the next level. A bit like playing a computer game, I guess, and there are various levels. You've got to be successful at one level to move to the next, to move to the next, and so on. And they were saying to the Christians, if you don't learn this stuff, 
then either you won't make it, you won't be saved, or if you are saved, you won't get a reward. You'll lose your prize. You'll be disqualified from God rewarding you. You'll miss out. That was the perspective that I was coming from. The Apostle Paul is saying, no, no, no. Jesus and him alone, he has built the bridge and he is all we need. In chapter 2, the Apostle Paul has just used this sort of illustration. <clears throat> that before we got to this position of accepting Jesus and acknowledging him to be our Saviour and our Lord, our Lord and Saviour, and they both go together, you can't have one without the other. Before we got to be in that position of repentance, of change, of accepting Jesus, being converted, then we were dead in sin. We were in bondage to sin. It's a bit like you're in this prison and the prison doors are locked and there are guards on duty and that you're in your inner cell and you are chained to the wall and you can't get free. It's impossible. And these people are saying, well, if you obey these rules and regulations and do these special incantations or whatever then you'll be set free. You'll be able to be reconciled to God. Just nonsense. And not only that, there is this record of all of our sins that imprison us in this thing. Well, Colossians chapter 2 and 13, 14 and 15 talks about what Jesus has done. You were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature, not yet being cut away. Then God made you alive. He forgave all your sins. He cancelled the record. He took it away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the spiritual rulers, made a public show over them as he was victorious over them through the cross. What Paul is saying is Jesus has unlocked the prison door. He's come inside. He's overpowered the guards. He's unlocked your door. He's removed the chains from the, the wall and you are now free. In Jesus, he's done it all. He's paid the penalty for your sin, all of it. There's nothing you can do and need to do to be acceptable to God except receive his gift of salvation through Jesus. That's it. Once you do that, it's yours. You're free. And Jesus doesn't set us free from the prison that we are in in order to put us in another prison. There are no rules and regulations to be added to what he has done for us. He set us free to have a relationship with him. He set us free to walk with him, to respond to him. He didn't set us free to be religious. He set us free to relate and to live our life in submission to him as our Lord. First thing you've got to do is begin to have a life which is connected with Jesus. Second thing you've got to do is once you've got that relationship is you to uh, give it your best efforts to maintain that, not being distracted by rules and regulations and legalism. Developing a relationship with Jesus is not something that's automatic. It's not that you do nothing. It's like any relationship. You have to put time into it. It's about communication. It's about listening. It's about responding. It's about growing and understanding who the other pe person is. The Apostle Peter concludes his second letter by saying, continue to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Continue to get to know him. That's what Christianity is all about. Knowing the Lord Jesus and loving him and learning more about him and being committed to him. 
and he is the one who offers us help in overcoming this enduring issue, reality that we have, which is the inward presence of sin in us. <clears throat> Jesus has set us free from the bondage of sin. We're set free from sin's penalty, paid for in full. Not until we get to glory will Jesus remove sin's presence from us. And in between, in this life, while the penalty of sin is broken and the power of sin is broken, the pleasures of sin still reside. And one day, he'll remove all of it. When he takes away the presence of sin, he'll take away the pleasures as well as the power. Until then, as he will go on to explain to us in chapter 3, there are choices we have to make in our response to Jesus on a daily basis. And it's not by coming up with rules and regulations, it's not by being legalistic about these things, which is what the church has done throughout the years. I'll read you some of those in a moment. But the reality is this. We have been set free from, by Jesus, but we have not been made better than anybody else. As I said this morning, what's the difference between a man who is in prison and he's there for murder and me. This morning, Charlie said the difference is that he got caught. <laughs> What's the difference? The reality is there's no difference. He's a sinner. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. We're all sinners. The only difference between me and the guy who committed the murder as a criminal and he's in prison and paying for his crime is that I've been forgiven. Under certain circumstances and given certain situations, I'm quite sure that I would be capable of murder. I believe that, potentially. I believe you are. We have no rights. It's ridiculous for us to, to assume that we are better than other people who commit different sins to us. They commit sin, we commit sin, we're all sinners. We ought not to be looking down our noses at others. That's what happens to the false teachers and to the religious leaders who want to obey the rules. Remember the story Jesus tells? Two men went up to the temple to pray. And one, the Pharisee, who was a religious person who obeyed the rules, but because of his pride and his pleasure in thinking he was so good, he looked down at other people. And he looked down particularly at the tax collector who was there with him. And he prays, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people. I keep your laws and I do this and I do that. And he's got his whole long list. What does the tax collector do? says seven words, seven words I shared with my dad one time when I was visiting him. I said, Dad, you just got to say those seven words and say them from your heart. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Nothing fancy, just honest. God, have mercy on me. I'm the sinner. I'm the one who's done all these things wrong. I can't get myself out of this situation. I need you to come and rescue me. That's what it means. So 
So when Jesus has set us free from our sin bondage, he hasn't set us free to feel that we are superior. We are not superior, we are forgiven. And that's the message that we are to pass on to others. Unfortunately, and it resides in me, and it probably still lingers in you, that there are parts to us where we do become a little bit judgmental or a little bit legalistic. There are certain things that we like or prefer or expect others to do in order for them to be good Christians. Apostle Paul is saying, no, it's just Jesus. Jesus full stop, not Jesus plus. It doesn't matter what the plus is, doesn't matter. Um, and as I said, this morning service, I read out a list of things and many of you are gonna to be too young to be aware of some of these, but this used to be very prevalent in the church. And some of you will know some of these things, if not all of them. But at one time it used to be expected or believed that Christians, if you're a Christian or a follower of the Lord Jesus, then you won't smoke. And that if you're smoking, well, you're not a Christian. You can't be. If you want to be pleasing to God, then you'll be a non-smoker. Where does it say that in the Bible? Uh, it doesn't. Am I therefore advocating that we should be all smokers? No. Should Christians smoke? No. Why not? Oh, it's bad for your health. But we as a church should be accepting and welcoming of people who smoke. Shouldn't we? At a distance, you know, not too close because they're smoking, but there's health things. What do you think of the idea that we have ashtrays put out in the foyer and outside the areas? or an appropriate designated smoking zones, or however you want to do it. My previous church, I've told this story before, of a group of people were smokers, there was about half a dozen of them, and at the end of the service, they were the first ones out the door, and they would go out to the quadrangle area. They'd stay for morning tea, but they had to have a smoke before they had their cup of coffee. They just couldn't last any longer. You know people like that. Sad thing. When you went up to that group, when I went up to that group, they had their cigarette. But when you went up to them, they turned it round and then closed their hand. So now it was inside their hand and they would put it behind their back. They didn't want to be caught smoking. Why not? Because they knew it was wrong and a sinful, wicked act? No. Because they didn't want others to be judging them and condemning them. That's what it was about. We've been set free from the bondage of sin. And we're no different. We're sinners saved by grace. We ought not to be looking down our noses at anybody else. We should be the... Jesus wants us to be an accepting group of people. People who struggle with same-sex attraction, welcome. They're flawed in that particular area of their life. Well, I'm flawed in some of the areas of my life. So are you. We all have our flaws. Christians can't smoke. Christians can't drink. Christians can't get tattoos. Hmm. 
as I said this morning, too late. I had two people come to me after one of the morning services, two different people, two different occasions. They had a verse for me. Doesn't the Bible say you're not supposed to mark your skin and cut yourself? Book of Leviticus, yep. I said, if you think that is referring to tattoos, then that's for you. That's not what the passage is talking about. What it's really talking about is idolatry and marking yourself in terms of worship. That's the context. But if you and your conscience think that's what it's saying, then don't you get a tattoo. It's amazing the list we can come up with. Did you know at one point it was required for men to wear suits to go to church? We've adjusted that now. It's in many churches these days, at least you don't have to wear a suit, but you do have to have a tie on. Even sometimes our Chinese brothers and sisters are still there. The preacher has to have a tie. <clears throat> and I can tell tonight, just looking around, that none of us are pleasing God because none of us are in suits. Men can't have long hair. Women can't have short hair. They shouldn't colour their hair. Women shouldn't wear makeup. They shouldn't wear pants and they shouldn't have jewellery. These are the rules that you need to obey if you want to please God. Men shouldn't have facial hair. You shouldn't dance. Shouldn't go to the movies, it's a sin. Shouldn't play with cards and you shouldn't gamble. Now you can have an opinion on all of those things but that's what it is, it's your opinion and that's up to you and your conscience between you and God but don't take your opinions and your standards and impose them on other people and judge them for it. You're adding to in your mind, how they can be acceptable to God. They can't possibly be acceptable to God the way they're behaving, dancing and having that much fun. It's just not Christian. And that's certainly sort of like what the false teachers were saying to the Colossians. Well, if you don't follow our rules and our regulations, then you're not pleasing God and you'll lose your reward. And Paul is writing back to correct them to say, no, that's not correct. It's the Lord Jesus is supreme. And his death on the cross is fully sufficient. That's it, done. You're reconciled to God, fully acceptable to him. Now just stay connected to him. Hang on to him, grow in him, know him, and grow in obeying him, submitting to him as your Lord. And he will grow you. He's committed to that. You just need to be responsive in your relationship to him. Day by day. It's about the relationship. So the Apostle Paul has basically said to the Colossians, it all begins by you being connected with Jesus. Number two, stay connected to Jesus. Jump to the next slide and the one after that might help. Stay connected to Jesus. Maintain your relationship with him. And number three, he alludes to it here in verse 19, but he will go on to expand it in chapters 3 and 4. The Apostle Paul says that Jesus is the head of his body. Stay connected to the church. That's Jesus' will for you. He set you free out of prison, the prison of sin. He set you free to have a relationship with him, but he also introduces you to, into his new family, church. Be part of his functioning, growing body. He's the one who holds the whole body together by its joints and its ligaments and it grows as God nourishes it. 
And the New Testament is quite emphatic in this horizontal dimension to the gospel. It's all about rightly related, connected to Jesus. But if I'm rightly connected to him, then the overflow of that in my life is I am going to want to be connected to his, my brothers and sisters in him. That was my experience. I became a Christian in January back in 1973. Within weeks, I suddenly had this desire in my heart, I need to go to church. I need to go to church. And I wasn't a church guy, but I had become a Christian. I was on school holidays. So the only contact I had were with the Christians who were in ISCF at school. And I didn't see them in the holidays. But I've got this desire. And I told my mum, I want to go to church. And she started to come with me. Now, that's my experience. And that's my general expectation. That's what the Holy Spirit will do. He'll lead you to Jesus. And once he's led you to Jesus, he'll want you to grow in Jesus. And then you'll have this a desire to want to connect with his people, belonging to them. That's what the Bible says all the way through, all of the one another passages. So maintain your growing relationship with Jesus in the context of his people. Becoming a Christian is personal. Being a passionate follower of Jesus is corporate. We need both. So commit yourself to a congregation, this congregation. Commit yourself to a life group, to a small group, where you'll be honest and you'll be able to share honestly and receive support and give support to others who are struggling with life's issues. Pick a ministry area where you can help serve out, whether it's in the evening congregation or somewhere else in, our, in the life of our church. Begin with a connection to Jesus, maintain that connection with Jesus and maintain a connection with his body, the church. We're going to pray together. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for sending Jesus into our world. Thank you that he came and opened the prison doors, removed the chains that bound us, cancelled the list of deeds of our sins written against us and has now set us free. Free to walk in a living, loving relationship with him. Lord, assist us day by day in being connected with you, listening, responding, talking to you, relying on you, being obedient to you. And also, Lord, help us to maintain our connections with one another, to be your person in the midst of this church family. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said...